Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. This is the Good Friday Show podcast. Now, I got to go into this with the exception of one song that I'll play because uh, it's the pastor I'm introducing. It's his church's music. Uh, so I can get away with it. I can't play music in the show. I can broadcast it on radio, but not on podcasting. The licensing issues for broadcasting music and podcasts is absurd, and we'll get taken off all the streams if we have a lot of it in there. Uh, so th there are, in one of the songs, is it's unlicensed, so I can play it. The other is from the church of the pastor I'm interviewing, so I can play it. Uh, the others, I've, I, you'll hear parts of music that have had to be cut out, and I'm sorry, I wish I could run those for you. I wish I could play those songs so you get the real feel of the show, but I can't because of all the legal rules regarding putting music in podcasts, and I needed you to know that going into it. Now, this year's Good Friday show. Think about the thief on the cross. I went on a meds. I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and yet, and yet you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, like, because I don't know. Well, you know, we, uh, did you, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor angel. So we have just a few questions for you, first of all. Are you are you are you are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, "I never heard of it in my life." And and what about? Uh, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, "On on what basis are you here?" And he said, "The man on the middle cross said, I can come.' Now." Now, that's the, that is the only answer. That is the only answer. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. It is Good Friday, I believe. Um, you know, I think that's Sinclair Ferguson. Um, in any of it, uh, that's circulating this morning on Twitter. And I want to start the show. It is Eric Erickson here nationwide uh, from Atlanta, Georgia. I, you were, I gave the call screener the day off. Um, I, I, so no offense, every time I've taken calls in the last couple of years, it's just, uh, callers who just want to try to one up the theology and make it more complex for people. And, and I've got a bunch of interviews today. Now, if you're tuning in, you're thinking, wait, what about the politics and the polling? This isn't it today. Uh, today is literally, according to surveys from Harvard, from Oxford University, from Cambridge, um, from uh, various universities around the world, including in China. Today is the anniversary of the most important or one of the most important events in human history. I would say the most important. 
but it depends on which survey you take. But it always, always, it doesn't matter what survey, uh, whether it's the University of Shanghai, whether it is uh, Cambridge University, whether it is Harvard, whether it is Yale, uh, you name it, uh, in, in surveys of academic historians, what are the most important events in human history? This is in the top five. A the son of a carpenter today, about a thousand nine hundred eighty nine or so years ago, uh, was found guilty of crimes he did not commit, completely innocent. The fifth Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, uh, tried to get him out of it. He couldn't because the crowd was kind of going wild for this insurrectionist named Barabbas. So he had to hand the guy over. His name was Jesus to uh, the Roman centurions who beat him. Uh, once, beat him again so badly you could see the bone through his skin, put a crown of thorns on his head, made him carry a cross up a hill, nailed him to it, and let him die. Had it stopped there, probably none of us would remember this. In fact, there were literally dozens of similarly situated men who claimed to be the Messiah. And we don't remember any of their names. Incidentally, several of them have the beginning name Jesus. It was a pretty common name back then, Joshua. Um, It it was a a pretty common name. And we don't remember any of those guys. We remember this guy. Now, some atheists have tried to say, well, we're conflating him and them and others. But actually, we've got so much historic documentary evidence that this guy was real. We've actually got more real-time documentary evidence closer in time to his life than we do, for example, the Emperor Nero. We have documentary evidence of Jesus living within maybe 100 years of his death, if not sooner. Some people would argue sooner, within 50 years of his death. The closest extent history we have of Nero being alive were several hundred years after his death. Uh, Julius Caesar's Gallic campaigns, we don't doubt he wrote it. But the most, the closest in time piece of, of the Gallic campaign writings that we have is 900 years after his death. By historic standards, this guy existed. I can't tell you he's the son of God from those historic standards, except something clearly happened. His entire family rejected him in life and then went to his, their deaths after his resurrection, claiming that he was God. Uh, the Romans exterminated, by the way, his entire, and this doesn't come out in church sermons a lot, but the, the Romans exterminated this guy's entire bloodline. That's actually documented in secular histories of the time. The Romans hunted down this guy's family. He was presumed to have half-brothers and some sisters, half-sisters, or first cousins, some people believe, and the Romans killed them all. His brother James, thrown off a temple, proclaiming him Lord, wouldn't show up at his execution, proclaimed him Lord, was stoned to death. His brother Jude and Jude's kids and grandkids all gutted, disemboweled before the emperor. They wrote books of the Bible, James and Jude. This is fascinating. But is he divine? I think he can answer that for you himself because I think he is and he's alive. But I think that given the the life-changing, world-changing, historic-changing event 1,989 or so years ago, close to 2,000 years ago, it's worth pausing and doing this show on that. I'm going to talk to Ed Letton, the uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm going to talk to my friend Eric Reed, who wrote a wonderful book about overcoming anxiety and despair. His son was born uh, with a kidney defect. Uh, the doctors took out the wrong kidney. He had to have a transplant, grew up, uh, got fungal meningitis, had a massive stroke, and died at 15 or 17. I'm going to talk to uh, Leah Duncan. He is the chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary, where I go to seminary. And we're going to talk to Scott Sauls, a pastor of a huge church in Nashville, one of the fastest growing areas of the country. He wrote a new book, Beautiful People, 
don't just happen about, well, coming to terms with, with your own flaws. And I will talk a little bit about uh, the, the theological meaning of this day some. I normally do this free form, but I, I want to have those voices and, and really talk about what's going on in the world today because the world seems profoundly disrupted. It looks like there is no God. People have lost hope in COVID. People see the world and they're like, what, what, I mean, is God real? And then there's my story. The week before Christmas in 2006, my wife, I had to be the one to tell her she was going to die. She had to go to the hospital. They found spots in her lungs. They did a biopsy. And I mean, they, they diagnosed her as having a rare cancer that had spread to her lungs. That was the last place it would go before it was fatal. She had six months to live. And I had to be the one to wait for her to wake up from anesthesia and look her in the eyes and say, sweetheart, I'm sorry, you're going to die. I had to do that. And then I had to go get my kid from daycare. And I got home and I was so tired and I was so exhausted. And I sat in the mud and the rain and I just, I mean, I was crying. It was ugly cry. And my kid, my one-year-old, was just patting me on the face as if it was okay. And you pray and you pray and you pray and you try to find comfort and there is no comfort. And you wonder, where is God? Why is God mad at me? Why did he do this to me? And then you had to go have those conversations, y'all, the conversations. You've got six months to live. We got a lot of planning to do. Y'all don't ever want to go through that. Let me tell you, you never, ever, ever want to have that conversation with your wife or your husband who's going to die and you have small kids. How are they going to be raised? Where are you going to live? What are you going to teach them about their mother? You don't want to do that. I did that. Thankfully, they actually misdiagnosed her and she was fine. They sent the scans to the Mayo Clinic and they said it was a benign condition. But had they not misdiagnosed her in 2006, 10 years later in 2016, the same day I am being wheeled into an ICU unit and they're telling me I got to call my family. They don't, they've literally, they don't think I was going to live. My lungs had been filling up with blood clots and I didn't realize it. And I couldn't breathe. I literally couldn't walk down a flight of steps without stopping halfway, sitting down to breathe and standing up and having to breathe more just by the act of standing up. And they wheeled me in. And as I'm going, my phone is ringing. It's my wife. And I was like, oh, great, perfect time. And I got to tell her I'm going to die. She tells me the Mayo Clinic called. They think I've got lung cancer. And she did. Had they not misdiagnosed her 10 years before, they would have never caught it in time. She takes a small pill every day. It keeps the tumors from spreading at stage four. It's in all the lobes of her lungs, but the tumors are less than five centimeters. There are too many of them to be removed, but they don't grow because of this pill that's supposed to work for two years and it's been work, working for more than five. And I know one day, one day, the pill will stop working. And we live with the sword of Damocles over our head. Every three months she goes for a scan. Is this the day we find out they're growing and the pill no longer works? That's our life in quarterly installments we live but we live and will live because we believe that this guy conquered death and so i want to spend a few moments on that today i want to talk to these ministers uh, world famous theologians some of them 
on uh, what does it mean really to love your neighbor at a time we as Americans are at each other's throats. We hate each other, red and blue, internally, tribally, people hating each other within the same tribe for not believing the same things. How do we as a people continue to get along? And more importantly, what does it really mean to love your neighbor? I know people who, if they found out their neighbor was gay, would stand in the front yard and yell, repent, 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 and say, well, I'm loving them. I don't want them to go to hell. That's not what love your neighbor means. Look at the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan did not ask the guy on the ground, are you gay or straight? Are you a Republican or a Democrat? Uh, Have you repented of your sins? And do you know your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, before I help you? He just helped. I want to talk to these pastors about the world we live in the amount of despair we have. So many of you feel so isolated right now by what's going on in the world. That's today's show. We're not talking politics. We're talking life. And when we come back, the question I always get, how can you believe this garbage given that if you believe it, you're telling me your God has sentenced your wife to death? I'm going to address that one out of the gate. Eric Erickson, it is my show, and today's Good Friday, and I always take Good Friday, consider it like a, a tithe working on radio. The first time I did it, uh, <laughs> the corporate powers that be, they weren't real big fans of this much religion on a news talk show, but the audience loved it, and so now I do a Christmas one too. <laughs> um, I, I want to answer a question out of the gate. That, that song, Where Were You? It's by a group called Ghost Ship. I love that album. The album is The Good King. I always end the show in three hours. Into three hours, you'll hear one of my favorite pieces of music. It's uh, Jude's Doxology set to music. It's gorgeous. It really is. Uh, and I get asked all the time, how can you believe this stuff? Your, your wife has an incurable form of cancer you will more likely than not watch her die. How can you believe in a God? How can you look at the horrors in Ukraine, the hands coming out of the ground of buried children that the Russians killed, the bodies laid in the street, the disease and the famine in the world? How can you believe in a God who would do that? And I think the answer is how can I not? You see, I I believe that uh, there really were an Adam and Eve. And I know that discredits me to a lot of people who think they're very smart and believe in various theories of evolution, but I I believe it's true. And I I believe they sinned greatly and they did what God told them not to do. And all of our wills since have been bound to sin and the world has fallen and the whole world is polluted with sin. And that's caused disease and violence Evil is not caused by God, it's caused by the absence of God. Where there is not God, there is evil. 
And we don't get an escape from this world. We have to live through I don't know why. I don't have the answer. I don't know that I would trust a theologian who told me they had a definitive answer for why God structured this in this way. I think there are some things we're not supposed to know. We're supposed to know everything we need to know from Scripture, and I don't think we're supposed to know. Why is arranged in this way? What comes after other than eternity? We have a glimpse of it, but but what purpose is this refining fire that we're going through here? I, I, I really, I don't know. It gets us, and I know it's to glorify him ultimately. But I'll tell you this, uh, he went through it with us. That's what this whole weekend is about. Uh, my wife has an incurable form of cancer. I've seen friends of mine wither and die. Uh, we all watch our parents grow old, some of us, if we're lucky. Some, our parents die when we're young, and we tend to resent God because of it. God himself came down to earth, born in a manger, grew up a perfect human being without sin, and still chose to be tortured, beaten to within an inch of his life, nailed to a cross, and died. So we don't get out of this hell on earth. We don't get out of war. We don't get out of famine. We don't get out of disease. We don't get out of violence. We don't get out of misery. We don't get out of agony. We're forced to live through this life. And he chose, he didn't have to, but he wants a relationship with us so bad, he chose to do it too, so that he would know what it was like for us. So we can call on him when we're in misery and agony and scared and dying. And he's, hey, I've been there. I know what that's like. Come to me and I will comfort you. How can I not put my faith in a God who loves me so much that he was willing to live a perfect life and still die and then conquer death so that we can live with him? That actually gives me hope. We can't escape this world. We can't escape this fallen world. We can't escape the sin. And he chose to come into it. Yeah, that, that actually helps me sleep at night. I would be petrified if I thought this was all some random act and I'm stuck on this planet and can't get off of it and at some point will be buried under the ground or in ash and if I'm under the ground, the worms will leave my body and that's it, sorry, you're over. The moment everybody else forgets about you, you're really gone, gone. No, I believe I've got eternal life. I I, I really do believe that, y'all, I do. It gives me real peace and comfort and I think it's true too. It's it's not just a fable that I tell myself. There's a lot of historic evidence for it if you choose to actually explore it and look at it. I mean, the guy was real. No, no major historian thinks that. I'm I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And I believe he'll come again. And I know if I watch my wife in this world wither and die with cancer, I will see her again made new. And he will dry every tear. And he will comfort all of us. And I'll put my trust in Jesus.
is Eric Erickson here. This is the Good Friday Show across the nation from my flagship station, WSB in Atlanta, Georgia. That music is from Journey Worship, Come to the Lord. You'll find all these on the playlist if you follow me on Spotify or Apple Music at EW Erickson. You can get all the music I'm playing. And joining me happens to be the pastor from that church. Friend of mine I've gotten to know over the last year, first from Twitter, and now we text each other, occasional memes, among other things. Uh, Eric Reed joins me. Eric, welcome. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, having me. And uh, yeah, that song sounds familiar. Yeah, it does. By the way, that's you guys have done a great job with the music. Uh, I, I really have. appreciate you guys. Feel, you know, there are, I have actually come to the point where I'm like, there are certain groups from certain churches we can remain nameless that I just don't want to play on the program anymore. Uh, and yeah. you guys have really, you're filling a void for me. Well, I appreciate that. They they worked really hard to write sound music that's biblically based, theologically rich, and very singable, right? And so it's that's a hard combination uh, right. to hold together, and they do it so well. Now, it, you've been on before to talk about your book, Uncommon Trust, and, and I wanted to get you back on, particularly for Good Friday. In the last two years, the amount of stress and struggle, anxiety, the number of people I know who say they have anxiety – after COVID, mm. they've lost loved ones or they've struggled with illness. They're they're battling long-term COVID. And in your book, Uncommon Trust, you write about having lost your son and struggling with anxiety. And I really just wanted to open this up for you to come in and, and actually talk about your struggle and your recognition of, of how Jesus has impacted uh, your battles. Yeah, well, you know, I had never had any anxiety before. And so the first time I had a panic attack, I, I didn't know what was going on. And like anybody who begins having, you know, those feelings or experiencing uh, panic attacks or, you know, anxiousness, it, it's overwhelming, especially when you've never experienced it. You don't know what's going on. And, you know, I thought I was crazy for a little bit of time. I didn't tell anybody what I was dealing with. And, and you know, and it's just bottom line, it's just an awful feeling. Like, it's just absolutely terrible. I, and because I've experienced it, my heart breaks anytime I, I talk to somebody who's dealing with anxiety or battling it. But what I began to realize was that if I'm going to have to deal with this, then like everything else in my life, I need to take this before the Lord. And um, I need to ask the Lord to give me strength, to help me, to give me grace. Obviously, I pleaded with God to just take it away. And I think God has the ability to do that. But I also know that Paul pleaded with the Lord to remove, you know, a thorn in the flesh. The scripture doesn't tell us what it is, but three times he pleaded and the Lord told him, my grace is sufficient for you. And so hearing those words spoken to Paul, really, um, really, I took them to heart to say, okay, Lord, if you don't take away this anxiety, then I'm going to trust that your grace is sufficient for me in this anxiety and dealing with it. And, and honestly, you know, Eric, you know this, cause I think you battled it too that doesn't magically make it feel better. But what it does mean is I have to cling to him and depend on him moment by moment, especially when those bouts really get, get heavy. Now to set the stage a little bit here, your, your son Caleb was born 10 weeks premature, uh, Correct. two months in cysts on his kidneys. Uh, and they went in to remove the defective kidney and they wound up accidentally removing the good one as well, which set off, Struggles until he was 15. He had a horseshoe kidney and they were connected together. And because he was so little, his kidneys were probably the size of thumbnails, right? Mm -hmm. So when they saw that bad kidney with cyst on it, uh, they went to take it out and only realized 
you know, hours later when his vital signs began to go haywire that, that he didn't have a kidney at all anymore. And the, the good kidney had been taken with the bad one. And as you can imagine, that just turned our world upside down. I, I was naive. I didn't understand how, how much the kidneys did. You know, I didn't re- realize how critical that was, but I learned really quickly uh, after speaking with doctors and kind of getting a sobering picture of what, you know, really kind of laid ahead for us. And that began a process of being two years of dialysis and eventually getting a kidney transplant. But, you know, his life was changed forever at that point. And so the rest of his life was going to be a battle and, you know, medical care and really learning what it meant to hold him loosely mm-hmm. while at the same time loving him well. And in 2017, he got uh, meningitis. That's right. So the the issue was he was on medicine to keep his kidney transplant from rejecting. And everybody has to have that. If you've got a heart transplant, you know, kidney transplant, whatever kind of transplant you have, if you've got anything foreign in your body that you were not born with, your immune system automatically attacks that. It, it sees it as a foreign object, no different than seeing, you know, a surgical tool left in your body, right? It sees it as foreign and it attacks it. So in order to keep a, a transplanted organ from, rejecting, they have to give you medicine that kind of knocks down your immune system. It kind of keeps your immune system suppressed. And so that's great for your transplanted organ. It's awful for all the other sicknesses and diseases and viruses that we can all get. And so in 2017, you know, he'd had his kidney transplant now for, you know, 11 years at that point. And, you know, he had medical issues, but he was living a normal life. He was going to school. He was playing sports with his friends. He was getting online and gaming and screaming at the TV. You know, <laughs> he, he went to he went to summer camp with his friends. I mean, you know, it, you would have looked at him and said, he's a little bit smaller for his age. But, yeah, I mean, he's a normal kid, you know. And yeah. so he, he dealt with medical issues. Uh, he had all kinds of regiments and things he had to do from respiratory therapy and but, but what ended up happening is he got something called fungal meningitis, um, and it was all over his spinal cord and, and his brain, and we didn't know he had fungal meningitis until he had a stroke. And that stroke, uh, he was unconscious for three weeks. We didn't know if he would ever come out of that. We didn't know if the medicines they started giving him would actually kill the fungal meningitis. And um, it was called something – it was called cryptococcal uh, meningitis and it was a nasty, nasty, uh, fungus. And it ended up affecting his ability to ever speak again. It affected his ability to walk and talk and motor skills all were affected. And that began really a process for us again, kind of like life turned upside down, mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, we had gotten kind of used to, you know, transplanted, you know, Caleb, you know, this right. is, we had kind of settled into rhythms of taking care of him that felt very manageable. And now all of a sudden everything's unmanageable again. So we were thrown right back into what felt like the fiery furnace for us. Now, while all of this is going on and, and after Caleb passes away, you you're struggling with this anxiety. Now I I'm, I'm going to make this personal with me here for a moment because you and I haven't really dived deep into ourselves on this one to each other, but I have found that my anxiety gets worse the moment things start going well and I feel like I don't have to keep praying as much as I have. It just, Mm -hmm. it builds up 
almost to this unmanageable thing. And I, I know you still struggle with it. And you, you've I, Uncommon Trust has done me a world of good, frankly, Eric. Um, if you want to talk to somebody who it's really ministered to, it's me. And yet I still find these moments where I just get overwhelmed. Uh, That's right. Like even it, it, it sometimes feels like the prayer is there anybody even there listening? Am I wasting my time? Um, That's right. What, what do you What do you tell someone like me, just based on your own experience? Well, first and foremost, all of us are having a conversation uh, with ourselves all the time, right? We we all we all have a lot of self talk going on. It's so you know it's so natural for us that we don't even recognize we do it. We unconsciously do it all day long. We're having a a constant conversation with ourselves. And one of the issues that we've got to learn is to control what kind of conversation we're having. We, we have to start taking thoughts captive. Um, one of the things that we often do, which sparks our anxiety or can trigger panic attacks is, you know, we construct some pretty nasty narratives in our mind about things that are going to happen, how everything's going to fall apart, how that meeting's not going <laughs> to go well, you know? Right. And we don't even realize we're doing it. We do it so naturally. And as a result of that, what ends up happening is those thoughts don't just stay contained within our minds. They begin to affect our hearts. And that's really, I mean, anxiousness and panic, you know, I mean, you can literally feel your heartbeat increase. And, and so what happens is, is the things we think have, an, have a toll on us emotionally. And this is so subconscious, we don't even realize that we're doing it until we start to see the fruit of it, right? That, that increased heart rate, that, that anxiousness, that you know, just that need to want to kind of go outside and, and scream because we feel like everything's just kind of closing in on us. So, so you've got to take thoughts captive, but here's the other piece. You can't stop having the internal conversation. So you've got to start directing that conversation. You have to start preaching to yourself. Um, I know that a lot of your listeners probably don't think of themselves as preachers, right? So it's easy for me to say, preach to yourself. I'm a preacher. So, so I'd rather say this, talk the truth to yourself, speak the truth, right? Your life is in the hands of, of a sovereign God. He is wise. If he has the power to take away this anxiety from you, but he has chosen not to take it away, then he's doing something in you through that anxiety. And you may not like it, and you may would never sign up for it. I get it. I don't like it either. I wish I didn't have to deal with it. But I also know that God is doing something through it. And this is why I think, like John Piper says, you know, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might be aware of three of them. That's good to say. And, and I think that anxiety is one of those things that God uses as a shaping and sharpening tool in our lives. And so this is what I would say. If, you know, if, we're, if you are praying for the Lord to remove it and he hasn't, you know, first and foremost, guard your heart, guard your mind, the things you're talking about to yourself. Make sure you're preaching the truth to yourself. But if the anxiety persists, then I believe he had to almost have the response of Paul when he says, you know, well, if if your power is made perfect in my weakness, then I will boast all the more in my weakness because as I am you know, weak, Christ is strong in me. And so that doesn't magically make things feel pretty. And there's no cupcakes and rainbows associated with that. It's just, I got to live in that moment by moment dependence. Well, you know, and, I, and I God just, delights in that. I just always figure if I expect disappointment, I'm never disappointed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just expect to fail and everything else is gravy. Exactly. Yeah. Look, that that's well said. And, and I got to remind myself that, and it's sometimes it's just, it's so hard to do. Um, and so I appreciate that and your time. And, and look, just a couple more questions before I let you go here. First of all, 
Uh, can you tell me, I've asked everybody this question, a, on a personal level for you, we're at Good Friday, Easter's coming. What does it mean to you personally? Oh, my goodness. It means that my sins have been buried with Christ. It means that I've been raised with Christ. I'm no longer who I once was. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And Eric, honestly, just a super personal level, not only does it mean that I will spend eternity with with the Lord, not only does it mean that that the grave is not the end of the story for my life, it also gives me the hope and the confidence that when Jesus makes all things new, I'm going to see my son again, that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, which means he's certainly not the last. And so Easter to me is everything. My hope is solely wrapped up in the fact that Jesus atoned for sin and demonstrated the victory over sin by walking out of the tomb. And so the resurrection is not just a, it's not just a personal thankfulness that my sins are forgiven. It's everything that happens in his promise as a result of that. Jesus didn't just forgive sin so he could say, good, your sins are forgiven. It's so that he could give us all things. It's so that we could in, receive that inheritance that he promises us in the gospels. And so that that's what it means for me. It means that the grave is defeated, not just in Jesus, but for us one day as well. You know, a good radio show host needs to appreciate when you've come to a moment where you should put a period at the end of that sentence. And uh, I think uh, I got to give you the last word on, on that one instead of just continuing to ask you more questions because that's so well said. Eric, listen, I, I'm i delighted you could make time. I, I know trying to, to get our schedules coordinated to get this to happen and, and you made it happen. I can't thank you enough. Now, before I get out of here, I still have ads I got to do. And I got to tell you, I thank my sponsors, uh, including Patriot Mobile. They are a Christian conservative organization, and they want to provide you cutting edge service. And they want to give you all the great services that regular cell phone companies give you. But also they want to share your values and they want to put their money where their mouth is and support the conservative movement. And they do. And I hope you'll consider taking your business to Patriot Mobile. You can go to patriotmobile.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K, or you can call them 972-PATRIOT. They've got 100% U.S.-based customer service. They give great discounts. They want to support you. They want to support the great conservative causes you support. And they can do it with your help by taking your business to them. Uh, you get free activation with my name if you call them at 972-PATRIOT. Tell them Eric sent you. Or just go online to patriotmobile.com slash Eric. Don't worry about the coverage. You can see their coverage maps online. Talk to them about their great discounts. Patriotmobile.com slash Eric. Go do it today. Do business with a company that shares your value. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, when we come back, Ligon Duncan is going to join me. He is the uh, chancellor of Reform Theological Seminary, where I go to school and I want to talk to him about the deep theological issues and some of the cultural issues as well. He's a great guy. And I, you know, the reason I started going to seminaries because I started getting asked to preach on Sundays because talk about faith and culture issues always have. And I thought, you know, you know, I know what the Bible says about preachers and I better go to seminary and, and at least know what I'm talking about, know how to prepare a sermon at least. And I went to a reform seminary, reform theological, and all the little Baptist churches that were asking if I would stand in for the preacher on a Sunday. I was like, I don't think we want you now. <laughs> 
So rarely do I get to preach. I, I, I love it because it's a challenge. I literally, and I'm learning this is a skill set. I can get behind a microphone. My team can, can testify to this. I, I can get behind the microphone without any preparation, and I can do a three-hour radio show. Some of the best shows I've done, believe it or not, have actually been minimal prep. I, I've There have been things going on in life, and I can do it. Uh, and it's a challenge to preach, and I enjoy it because it's that challenge. And now I never get asked to preach anymore, and I kind of get it as well. I mean, I am the political guy, and you don't like I don't want the pastor to go all politics, and I don't know that I want the political guy to go all um, Christian. But the, you know, I, I have a I got a pulpit here. My seminary professor, my favorite seminary professor, Derek Thomas. He's the senior pastor at First Presbyterian in Columbia, South Carolina. I uh, ran into him at the airport one time, and, and his congregation, I'd mentioned him on air while I was filling in for Rush Limbaugh, and he got all sorts of feedback from me. He says, you know, you have a pulpit. He's Welsh. I love his accent. I just adore the guy. And this is my pulpit, and I try not to get preachy because I know there are a lot of people who don't believe, but I at least want you to understand what I believe and convey to you that I do recognize that we don't all see the world the same way. But this day is is so important. This day is monumental in the history of humanity, and everyone largely agrees with that. And so this is the day that I set aside to have these conversations. And uh, Ligon Duncan is going to join me from Reformed Theological Seminary when we come back. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here nationwide from my flagship station, WSB in Atlanta, Georgia. Joining me by phone, a friend of mine, the chancellor of the seminary I am an intermittent student at, <laughs> Lincoln Duncan joins me. Welcome to the program. It's really good to be with you today, Eric. And, and I should name check Reform Theological. I, I've got to tell you, given my schedule over the last couple of years, I haven't been able to get back to class, but I'm desperate to. It's so good for my brain and my soul to actually be in a classroom with a teacher learning about uh, this stuff. And, and as you know, I'm a big fan of Derek Thomas, and, and I was got a little shy about asking him to come on the show for a good Friday, but I probably should get him on at some point. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we, we have doctors, lawyers, and other professionals regularly taking courses just, you know, just for their own souls and for their own edification in the midst of their pursuit of their own professional vocation. So it's a, it is a wonderful break and respite from, uh, from the uh, grind that you're in day to day. It is very much so. Now, I, I, I want to ask you, first of all, let, let's get into a little bit of the theology. I, I write about this. I, I, I spend my entire week before Easter. Everything I write is about this. I, I ignore politics. Friday, the radio show, I, I focus on this. I, I read several surveys years ago. Uh, one was by Harvard professors. One was a, by Oxford University. It was a global survey of, of professors, uh, history professors. And in every single survey I could find, it was either the number one or within the top five most important events in human history was this guy named Jesus, who historians mm. tend to think is real, dies. Now, mm. whether they agreed with the resurrection or not, there was something about this event roughly 2,000 years ago that fundamentally has changed the entire world. Mm-hmm. 
And absolutely true. So, I mean, you as a Christian, obviously, we we believe in the resurrection. Um, but it, it, how do you explain this to someone who's not a believer? Well, I, you know, I, I I recommend that believers start off conversations with unbelievers simply uh, restating for them their embrace of historic Christian teaching uh, on you know, everything in the faith, but especially the resurrection, because so few people are actually familiar with what Christians historically believe. You know, I think a lot of times we think, oh, we've got to come up with an argument or we've got to convince them of this or give some compelling uh, sort of testimony. But a lot of times all we have to do is explain what Christians historically believe to open up a better conversation. Not, not that they're just going to immediately say, oh, I agree with you about that. But you actually invite them into better and deeper questions. Uh, when you state what Christians believe in. We, we actually believe that uh, Jesus, who was fully human and fully God, died and was buried and remained uh, under the power of death on those three days and was resurrected body and soul uh, from the dead, that uh, this was not merely a, a, a spiritual reawakening. It wasn't uh, a weak, uh, a reawakening in the hearts of his disciples that he was actually physically resurrected and uh, that he, he ministered on earth for a number of days and weeks before he ascended into heaven. And that that event, that, that resurrection is absolutely essential to our salvation because if he is not raised to newness of life, then we are not raised to newness of life. The Apostle Paul almost 2,000 years ago said that if Jesus is not resurrected, if there is not a resurrection, then we are of all men most miserable. A lot of Christians, you know this, Eric, because you've studied theology, a lot of Christians for the last 200, 250 years have tried to come up with some way of being Christian without believing in the resurrection. Right. And the Apostle Paul says it doesn't work. You know, you, you no resurrection, no Christianity. Now, you're the head of a global seminary um, that is reformed. Uh, I, I would say a lot of people would characterize uh, our um, seminary as conservative, uh, open mm-hmm. to, to Baptist, Presbyterians, and, and others. And you're increasingly dealing in populations around the world where, I I guess for lack of a better term, maybe post-Christian, I don't know that they ever were, but there's a growing hostility even to considering what to many people sounds like a fantastical story. Despite all the fantastical stories people around the world will believe, uh, this one in particular just seems to cause a reaction in people other stories don't how how do you not just navigate the seminary in this world but prepare people to get into the world to deal with the world that increasingly is hostile to the idea of christianity yeah, yeah great question and we have you know we have students from 46 states plus dc and puerto rico and 34 countries at any given time so we're we, we, you know, we're interacting with people on every inhabited continent, and and my travels take me to 
uh, every continent every 18 months or so. So I, I do get a feel for what's going on out there. And, and the good news is I, I do think we feel keenly, those of us who live in the United States and really anywhere in the sort of um, upper socioeconomic and educated Western world, we do feel a real hostility to Christian truth claims, whether it's about the supernatural or specifically about the resurrection or about the authority and uh, infallibility of scripture and things like that. Good news is that's actually the exception to the rule in, in the world. Uh, the, the reason why people will raise objections to Christianity in other parts of the world are different from the reasons why some of our more secular Western friends and neighbors raise objection to Christianity. And Christianity is still the fastest growing uh, movement in the world. And it's people that actually believe the, the fundamental tenets of Christianity, what is the apostles creed, um, the, 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 the prayer, the Lord's prayer, the 10 commandments, those that's the kind of Christianity that's growing in the, in the world today, not, uh, not some sort of scaled-down version that doesn't want to embrace uh, the truth claims of Christianity, but it's, it's where Christianity is believed, uh, root and branch, where it's grow, growing and flourishing. And it, and it is. We're, we're seeing uh, more Muslims come to faith in Christ uh, in the last 50 years than ever in the history of Islam. Wow. Uh, you know, we're seeing Christianity, the, the largest Muslim country in the world is Indonesia and Christianity is, uh, is significantly growing in Indonesia, uh, right now. Uh, Christianity in China, uh, is, uh, is continuing to grow despite even the present government's, uh, efforts at, re- at repression. And so th- there's a lot of good news out there in the global world, and as Christians, we, you know, we should we should be happy for the opportunity to be able to give that word of witness to Christ, to the Scriptures, to the Gospel, uh, because what we ultimately want to do is we want to give hope to people. We want to give real hope to people, not false hope. Uh, there are a lot of people selling false hope out there, and as Christians, we want to love our neighbors by pointing them to the real hope in life. Now, I'm glad you asked. Uh, you said that there because that gets me to my next question. When people regularly ask me about the, the passage of, of love your neighbor, and <clears throat> I've written several times now and said, I've looked, I've looked in the Greek, I, I've, I've gone through, I can't find exceptions to the rule there, uh, whether they're Democrat or Republican or liberal or conservative or gay or yeah. straight, you've got to love your neighbor. And it, it, I keep encountering people now who are like, well, yes, but I, if my if my neighbor is gay, the way I have to love them is to stand on their lawn and yell at them to repent or they're going to hell. And, and I'm like, right. no, you need to be the guy who they trust the house key to when they go out of town that yes. you'll make sure everything is good. Yes. How, do you, how do you talk to Christians these days in a world where they feel like is against them? How do you, how do you love your neighbor? Oh, what a great question, Eric. And it, and it's, I, look, I understand why people are struggling with that today. It's, it's always been hard to love your neighbor, right? Because we're one, we're instinctively selfish. And then when you, when you pile on top of that, the cultural trends of today, um, Christians can naturally be skittish, a little bit suspicious and fearful of, of what's being pushed and they want to be faithful 
Um, and, and let me just say, on the ground, I still find Christians at the congregational and individual level just doing extraordinary acts and ordinary acts of neighborliness on a daily basis. You know, you and I know some large denominational fellowships that have really gotten a black eye in the last four years, six years, eight years, 10 years because of scandals and things of this nature. Those things are important and they need to be addressed. But I happen to know people on the ground in those denominational circles that are just doing a great job of loving their neighbors. So I would, I would say n- number one is to remember that even in, in Jesus telling of the story of the Good Samaritan, he, he presses on all of us to ask the question, not who is my neighbor, but am I a good neighbor? And, and the way that question is answered is when, when, uh, when need is right in front of you as a believer, how do you respond to that in a way that honors God's commands and the spirit of the gospel. Are you concerned about the well-being of that person? It doesn't mean what, that you agree with that person, uh, that you uh, that you accept the lifestyle of that person. It means that you are actually engaged in caring for the well-being of that person. Now, you know, it has to be awkward in some context for Christians to love their neighbor when uh, their neighbors embrace beliefs and lifestyles which God says are not in accordance with his will. So it, it means that Christians have to embrace the awkwardness of some relationships. So I, I, have, a, I have a dear, dear friend uh, who has, uh, is in a gay marriage that I, uh, he and I have been friends since the time we were in college, and he knows that I love him and care about him. But it's weird for him knowing what I think because I believe in what the Bible says about men and women and about the definition of marriage. And it's, you know, it, it introduces an awkwardness into the relationship. But my attitude has, has been, look, I understand that what I think as a Christian is offensive to you, my friend, but I still love you and I care about you. And, and I, I think he knows that. And I think all of us need to embrace that awkwardness. In, in relationships where we simultaneously hold what the Bible teaches and what Christians historically have always believed that the Bible teaches on these various issues. And we also love and care for those uh, persons as best as we can, as consistently as we can, uh, in accordance with Jesus's commands in the Scripture. That is well said. Now, last question for you. We're, we're just about out of time. I'm asking everybody this question. Uh, what does Easter mean to you, Ligon Duncan, personally? Mm-hmm. It, it especially means the vindication of my Savior, that his, his life has been accepted in my place. His death has been accepted in my place. And God has shown that he is both Lord and Christ, and that as I trust in him, my sins are forgiven because he's lived a life that I couldn't live, and he's died the death that I deserve to die. And as I trust in him, his righteousness is imputed to me, my sins to him, my sins forgiven in him, and I am accepted in him. And so on Easter, I'm especially thinking of the resurrection whereby God says to me and to everybody else, this is my son, this is the Messiah, this is the hope for the forgiveness of your sins, this is the hope 
for the restoration of your humanity. This is the one whereby you uh, for eternity will dwell in communion with me. And this is the one who empowers you to live the way I created human beings to live in the first place, even in this fallen world right now. So Jesus is my everything. Well, look, I, that's one, thank you for that. And, and two, thank you for spending a few minutes with me on the radio to talk about this. I, I'm, I just, I, I value everything you've done. You mean so much to me. And, and this means a lot that you spend this time with me. Thank you. Well, what a joy to be with you today. Thank you for doing this. I hope your, uh, your audience is just blessed by it and that all the conversations edify them. And, uh, and happy Easter to you, Eric. You too. Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson here. It is the Good Friday Show nationwide. I, I'm, you know, it's, it's kind of weird to do this nationwide and a level of hesitancy I probably shouldn't have, but it's just so different from what people expect. It's just, it, it, it doesn't seem to me to be appropriate on Good Friday to just be all politics and rah, Howard Dean. <laughs> uh, do you know, one of the weird phenomena in the world is uh, right now, while a lot of you think that the church in the West, particularly in the United States, were squabbling with each other, people are fighting with each other, and oftentimes it's like Mary Martha divisions. It's both people, they're Christians, and and they, they would probably get along well, but they're doing it so differently, and both sides are so afraid the other side is either slipping into wokeism or too much um, fundamentalism. Uh, that we're not showing grace, we're not really loving our neighbor, and people are twisting how it means to be a loved neighbor. Uh, I actually think, you know, the, the Christian church historically has, has thrived with persecution, and I think this growing contempt for Christianity in the West is actually going to make it stronger. I mean, look what's happening in China. There are now estimated to be more Christians underground in China than there are total Americans. There are 330 million of us. There are a billion people in China. They think there are over 330 million Christians privately, quietly living their faith in China. Uh, it is the fastest growing religion in Iran. Uh, Christianity is, did you know that? And in the Middle East, uh, it is now outpacing Islam again uh, in terms of growth. The number one way someone in the Middle East converts to Christianity, oddly enough, they have random dreams about Jesus. Muslims are converting because of random dreams about Jesus. I can't explain it. No one can explain it. Uh, but they have these random dreams and they convert in Josh Ushef, uh, uh God bless Josh. He runs Help the Persecuted. It's a, a nonprofit I love. They work all around the world helping persecuted Christians in the Middle East. They, they got stories about these people. They just have dreams of Jesus and convert and risk their lives and help the persecuted help some. Uh, HTP.org, if you want to check them out, great people. Uh, it is a profound thing to see around the world. Uh, and I think we'll see it back in this country as well. Now, when we come back, Scott Sauls is going to join me. Uh, he is the pastor up at, oh, what is it? I can never remember. Christ Presbyterian in Nashville, fastest growing area of the country, 1,000 people a week. Uh, and we're going to talk about how do you engage in that culture and how do you live with people who don't necessarily believe. Also, uh, Ed Litton, uh, at the top of the third hour, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention right now, I still have to tell you about Omaha Steaks. They've got an incredible deal for you. If you go to omahasteaks.com and you put Eric in the search bar, you can see the Omaha Steaks uh, sampler pack, the butcher cut fillets. You got the caramel apple tartlets my wife loves. You get the chicken breasts. You get meatballs. You get 12 burgers for free. 
also, if you go to um, you scroll down the page, you see the Eric Erickson favorites. And I actually am going to be making the wild Argentinian shrimp, turn them into shrimp tacos this weekend. They've also got the New York strips. I like the chocolate bun cakes, but you know, they give you a hundred percent satisfaction guarantee. You don't have to sweat it. Uh, if you aren't sure, if you don't know, well, Omaha steaks gives you a hundred percent satisfaction guarantee. So you don't have to, you don't have to think you're throwing your money away. You're going to be satisfied. You are because it's fantastic stuff. But I just want you to know that. Go to omahasteaks.com today. Put Eric in the search bar. You'll get great value, great deals, good food, and 100% satisfaction guarantee. Welcome back. It is the Good Friday show. If you're looking for politics today, you're not going to find it. Uh, We're talking the most important things because even as I've said, secular historians, according to Oxford University, have said whatever happened 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem to a man named Jesus uh, has so impacted the world, it's regularly listed as one of, if not the most important events in human history, even if you don't believe in the resurrection. It's had profound impact on humanity. And joining me, I I, I got to tell you, um, for years, friends of mine told me, and, and this is my open confession that I didn't say before we started this conversation off here. For years, friends of mine have said, very much like the Tim Keller situation, you know, this Scott Saul's guy, you got to be skeptical of him. And then I started reading Scott Saul's books because he reached out to me and sent me his book. And I find all the time uh, friends of mine who were so skeptical of cultural engagement if they would just read people for themselves, they would realize, you know, these are the people who are working in culture, turning people to Christ, and and maybe we should show some grace to the way they go about it. And Scott is joining me on radio, and I, I specifically wanted to save that on air and capture it for you, Scott, because the, the book you sent me and now your current book, Beautiful People Don't Just Happen, which comes out next month. Uh, this one in particular has just had a profound impact on me this week, given stuff I'm going through. And I can't thank you enough for reaching out to me as you reach out to so many people in culture and try to bring them to Christ. Well, thank you, Eric. It's a, it's a privilege to have a, a conversation with you. And actually my, my introduction to you was an interview that you did with Tim Keller. It may have been your first. And I, I listened and just thought, gosh, I, I hope someday to get to know this guy. Uh, cause he asks really great questions and, and, uh, and, uh, he's resonating really well with my mentor. And so, so hopefully we can have a friendship too someday. So I'm, I'm glad to, to start that friendship now and, and, uh, appreciate you, uh, having me, uh, uh, share a little bit with you about, Good Friday with your audience today. Now, I actually, because the book you've written, and I guess what, this comes out in in June. Um, In fact, folks, if you want to pre-order it, text the word DATA to 33777, and I'll give you a link uh, for Scott's book. But the title is Beautiful People Don't Just Happen. The subtitle, How God Redeems Regret, Hurt, and Fear in the Making of Better Humans. And you're really personal in this with some of your own foibles and flaws and, and that that you've encountered. And first of all, how do you, you as a pastor, you're behind a pulpit, uh, you're reaching out in, into culture. How do you, I guess, work up the courage to tell some of the, the things about yourself in this book? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, it, and it's always a judgment call, right? Because you don't want to bleed on people and make your your ministry about yourself or about your own story. But, um, honestly, Eric, the, 
the people who have always had the greatest impact on me, and uh, that includes people in the Bible, uh, are people who uh, tell on themselves uh, on some level, who you know show themselves to be human, show themselves to be frail, and um, and you know carrying the same pain points that that every other human being carries of uh, things like regret and, and hurt and fear and. Um, you know, I found over the years, I've been, I've been at this for a while. I've been in uh, pastoral ministry for, uh, 27 years now. And, uh, you know, if I look back and, and think about, you know, what are the most impactful difference making things that, that I've been able to be part of, it's always involved me or somebody else, um, being transparent, being honest about, about the pain points of, you know, hurt and guilt and shame and, and, and things of that sort, loneliness, um, as a bridge into the message of hope, which is really what, what this weekend is about, right? It starts with, uh, Christ, uh, being, um, quite literally naked, uh, before the world and, um, crying out to God in pain in a very public way, uh, as the precursor to, of course, the greatest day in the history of the world when, when he comes up from the dead on Easter Sunday. And so I think in a manner of speaking, even Christ is the perfect, um, perfect human being. And in, in my view, the only perfect human being who has ever lived, um, uh, you know, his, his suffering and his sorrow and his humiliation are actually the, um, the breeding ground for the hope that, that he, that he has to bring. And he actually chose that life. And so it seems that those who want to make a difference on some level, um, have an opportunity to follow a similar pattern. And I found too, that the people criticize me more, Eric, when they perceive that I'm hiding my weaknesses uh, than they do when I'm, when I'm sharing them. Uh, and I'm sure that's true of most people. I definitely think that's true. Uh, so your, your eighth chapter is called the church basement. You talk about, uh, you know, in the church basement, that's where the, the recovery happens. The people sit in a circle and, and they talk, and then that that's the setup then for in the next, I want to read this paragraph, uh, enters the real Jesus who leads with neither scolding nor shaming nor condemnation, but with gentleness, welcome, and grace. He invites you, follow him in the church basement where there is humility, honesty, safety, and freedom to come out of hiding. It is there that he will make you brave. And when you become brave, you will make it your mission to bring the church basement to the church sanctuary and from there into the world. I am noticing, and I, I don't even know what to do with it because it's it's a lot of friends of mine who they feel embattled by culture right now. And I just, I, I, I see the conversations, particularly in social media, and, and it disappoints me having made a, a pivot several years ago to start following more pastors, less politicians, to now have the pastors yelling at each other. And, and I just wonder yeah. what has happened to the grace within the church? It just, it seems like social media has, has made us prioritize things other than loving your neighbor and showing each other grace to agree to disagree with how we do ministry. Well, that's a great question. And I, you know, I, I'm sure there's a, a million answers to it, Eric, but I, I, I think the reason why, or at least one of the main reasons why, um, you know, believing people and, and, and that includes pastors, clergy, ministers, 
um, get swept up in it. Uh, it is really a, um, you know, what we Christians at least call a discipleship, uh, outcome, uh, and discipleship is really about, uh, who or what it is you are following. And I, I think in this current political climate, so many of us, people of faith included have allowed ourselves to, uh, be discipled more, uh, by the voices of partisan political culture. And, and that that's from the left and from the right. Um, uh, it's sort of an equal opportunity, uh, distraction, I think, but, but I think that, um, that a lot of us have just gotten swept up into the, the secondhand smoke that we're breathing all day long, uh, uh, of, of just the, the dominant loudest voices and, you know, throw a pandemic in there for two years plus, and, and you get a lot of anxiety and you get a lot of fear and, and then from that comes all of the pathologies that involve unhealthy anger, unhealthy, you know, mm-hmm. guilt, unhealthy, um, hostilities and divisions. And, and then you get what we've got. Um, and, and so, you know, I think, I think the answer, especially for people of faith is to return, um, you know, to return to the, uh, the one who entered into a politically hostile climate, Christ himself, along with his disciples and paved a better and different and more life giving way, uh, as a different kind of King. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I think it's easy in the Western world to forget that, that Christ and, and his followers, uh, were under constant scrutiny and under constant, uh, criticism on a good day and violence on an average day from, uh, from the powers that be in the Roman empire. And if you go back to the old Testament, that was true in Pharaoh's Egypt and Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon and Tiglath-Pileser's Assyria. Um, you know, the whole Bible came out of a, an environment of political division and, and unrest and distress. And, and what you see is Christ and, and his followers, um, creating these countercultures that, that are not against the culture that are not hostile toward their neighbors, but, but that, that sought to love their neighbors better than the state did and better than politics ever could. And, and in that they showed a different way, but it, it involves certainly a lot of self donation, sacrifice, humility, uh, and that sort. Uh, so, Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I'll stick with Jesus and, and yet, um, I also understand, um, you know, the pain points that cause people to be ang- anxious and restless in a culture that's as divided as it is right now. Now you are, and for those of you just joining them, I'm, I'm talking with Scott Sauls. He's the senior pastor at Christ Presbyterian church in Nashville. And you are in Nashville and I know you've got a, a passion even coming from when you were at Redeemer New York to deal with, uh, city areas, uh, one of one of my seminary professors used to always say, uh, and, you, and you might you might have, have run across Derek Thomas, uh, is my uh, mm-hmm. systematics professor at at uh, RDS, yes. and says that mm-hmm. there's a theology of uh, cities in the Bible, and it's not a very good theology for cities, but you have to go there because that's where the people are, <laughs> and um, I, I just whether you agree with this statement or not, you you seem to have this passion. And how do you engage, particularly in Nashville? It is a a thriving mm-hmm. urban area. I think a, a thousand people a week are moving in there. A lot of them unchurched, um, haven't grown up mm-hmm. in the church. How do you engage yeah. that community? So, yeah, they call Nashville the third coast these days. Uh, I think that's a phrase that was coined first by the New York Times and the L.A. Times about Nashville because of of the migration 
from both coasts and the secular, you know, viewpoints that are coming with it. Uh, you know, Amazon has set up its second headquarters here in the last, last little bit. And that's representative of the whole movement in our city. And I, you know, I, I do, uh, agree with your, uh, with your seminary professor, uh, uh, Reverend Thomas and, uh, uh, you know, the city is, is the place. It's sort of the epicenter of, of, of all kinds of human brokenness and all kinds of, um, human sin and division and, you know, the social problems that, that, uh, are maybe easier to ignore in, you know, the suburbs and in rural areas cannot be ignored in urban areas. Uh, but uh, that also presents an opportunity to hopefully do what Christ did. And that is to dive straight into the belly of, of, uh, you know, just the dregs of, of human brokenness and pain and, and, and sin and, uh, seek to be, uh, a healing remedy, uh, by virtue of your presence there. And I, you know, I, I do think it's important also to, to recognize that, uh, history as it's described in the Bible is going to end, uh, with a city. Uh, you know, the last chapters of revelation talk about the holy city that's, that will come down out of heaven from God as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband and Jesus will say, behold, I'm making all things new, right? Uh, which points to the resurrection and its future implications for those who trust in Christ. Uh, it, it's going to be a city that's not broken anymore. Uh, it's still going to be wildly and amazingly diverse um, and, and colorful and artistic and creative, but without uh, all of the, um, you know, debauchery and division and, and um, um, problems that we, we, tend to find, uh, in, in urban centers these days, but that's important also to recognize that even now urban centers, uh, are also wonderful incubators for, for good and beautiful creativity, uh, as well. I mean, you, you mentioned our friend Tim Keller earlier in the conversation and he's devoted his whole life to, you know, to being present and, and, training, uh, followers of Christ to be present in the cities and the places where they live, work and play. And I, I think that, uh, over the course of the last few decades has been to a very good effect and had a uh, much more positive influence on the world than, than a negative one. But, but it's always going to be a grind. It's always going to be, uh, there's always going to be darkness, uh, no matter where we look, it's just, I think it's just amplified a little bit more in the urban context, but there's darkness everywhere just as well as there's, uh, there's light everywhere because the presence of God is everywhere. And it's just a question of how do we tap into that in whatever context we're in. The book is beautiful. People don't just happen. If you text data to three, three, seven, 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 I'll send you a link to pre-order. It hasn't come out yet. I'm telling you, I, I, I don't interview people unless I've read the book and the moment I read it, uh, I, I needed to get Scott on the show and I can't thank you enough for spending good Friday with me on the radio. Um, and I just, I, I'm look forward to getting to know you at some point. I'll get up to Nashville because my wife loves to quilt and her favorite fabric designer is up in Nashville. So I'll get up there and I'll let oh, you wonderful. know. Well, you've got my cell phone. I'd look forward to that. I'd love to treat you to lunch. Absolutely. Happy Easter to you. You too, Eric. Happy Easter. While we're clearing the air about everything else, let me tell you about Eden Pure. I thank you to them for sponsoring today as well. Eden Pure's Thunderstorm is an air purifier that really does clean the air. It eliminates odors. It's filterless, so you don't have to keep buying subscriptions to it. And you can get three of them for less than $200. All you do is go to EdenPureDeals.com. 
EdenPureDeals.com. You'll see a discount code box and you will put Eric3 in the discount code box and you will save a lot of money. You'll save $200. You will get three Eden Pure Thunderstorms for less than $200 and you'll get free shipping. The discount code that you use is e, uh, Eric3, E-R-I-C-K-3, and the website is EdenPureDeals.com. That's Eden, like the Garden of Eden. <laughs> EdenPureDeals.com. The discount code is Eric3 for three Eden Pure Thunderstorms. Save $200. Get all three of them for less than $200, and you'll get free shipping at EdenPureDeals.com with the discount code Eric three. It's Eric Erickson and it's the good Friday show. I'm glad you're here with me. If you're just tuning in. Yeah. We're actually talking like higher order topics, theology and stuff today. Cause it's good Friday. Most important event in human history. Christians would say is the resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday. Uh, if you're secular, you'd say it's today. Now, assuming you believe Jesus is real and I, I believe he's real. Uh, historians believe he's real. Even if they don't believe he was the son of God or God himself, they're like, this guy, by all documentary standards of history, we can't say he's divine, but we can say he was real. you got to write a whole lot of people out of history to write Jesus out of history using just the same historic standards. For, forget about son of God stuff. Just was he real? Yes. By historic standards. Yes. If he wasn't, Julius Caesar wasn't. We got more actually contemporaneous accounts of Jesus than we do of Caesar. Um, so yeah, I believe he's real. And when we come back, the president of the Southern Baptist convention, Ed Linton is going to join me to talk about this and cultural engagement. How do you engage a world that is increasingly hostile and how do you love your neighbor in a world that, uh, isn't sure they want you to love them and you're not sure you want to love them. We'll talk about that right now. I need you to know. This hour of the program is sponsored by the Frost family at First Liberty Building and Loan. They're in Noonan, Georgia. They're longtime friends of mine, and they are devout Christians, and I'm very flattered uh, that they would uh, want me to make sure you knew they were sponsoring today's program. Uh, they're good people, the Frost family are, and they've been helping small businesses since the 90s at First Liberty. And I tell you they're in Noonan, Georgia, but it doesn't matter. Whether you're in Portland, Oregon, or Orlando, Florida, or, or Kenny Bunkport, Maine, they can help your business grow. If you want to get to yes with a big loan, $750,000 or up, and banks are telling you no, reach out to them, firstlibertyga.com, firstlibertyga.com. Thank you to them for sponsoring. Now, I got to say, uh, you heard Scott and me talk about this and, and Ligon Duncan and me earlier. I want to talk to Ed a little bit about it as well when he comes on. But uh, this love your neighbor thing, it is not easy. It's not, particularly in this day and age, but you got to. There are no exceptions to it. You got to love your neighbor, and that means actually being there when your neighbor needs you and not being a jerk to them. Keep that in mind. Welcome back. As I said earlier, uh, I have a lot of PCA ministers joining me today for Good Friday. I am in the PCA, but I grew up Southern Baptist. My wife still wants our kids to be thoroughly dunked to make sure they really are saved. And joining me happens to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and the senior pastor at Redemption Church in Saraland, Alabama, Ed Linton. Thanks for joining me. Eric, it's an honor to be on your show. My my wife, by the way. So, I mean, we we are still Southern Baptists at heart. And in the PCA, you know, sometimes they change the lyrics of the songs and she still seems, sings them the right way. <laughs> That's true. That's good. That's good. Now, I, I really wanted to get you on to, to talk about the, the cultural climate that we're in right now, being the head of the largest denomination in the country and inside and outside my denomination and yours, 
There are all sorts of, I call them Mary Martha arguments on how to handle both uh, internally the culture of the church, but really externally with a culture that just seems like it, it's not receptive to us and oftentimes tells us, look at yourselves, why would we want to be with you? And it, it, it I just, I, I wonder how do you, uh, not as the president of the SBC, but as, as a pastor in Alabama, deal right. with people who are maybe curious, maybe hostile to what we know to be true? Well, that's a great question. And it's, it's a, it is a serious subject that we have to consider um, because the reason God put us here in the body of Christ is to be his local representatives. Uh, the Bible says that uh, the church is the, the pillar of truth in a community. And how do we communicate that truth in love and grace if, if we're at hostility, if we're hostile toward the people outside? We have to be, what, what I believe we do best when, we're, when we do it, uh, and it's just not done as often as it needs to be, is that we show people the love of Jesus Christ by how we love one another. And, uh, and so the, the commandment that we, that we all as believers have is because Jesus died and rose again, that we have new life and we have a capacity to love even our enemies. And, and so living out that love in a community uh, means that we care about people. We care about their condition, their social condition. We care about their other conditions and we care about their eternal condition. And as the body of Christ functions in a community, making it a better place to live and caring for injustice and justice issues and caring about racism and other things in our community, it, it starts to make a difference in how we communicate. It really is our credibility. I was at a very small church when my wife and I first got married. She had to have a double mastectomy, 25 years old, um, prophylactic mastectomy. They, they knew she was going to get cancer. And we were in a very large church, and we moved from a very large church to a very small church where we were probably the youngest couple there by about 35 years. Uh, wow. Did not have kids at the time. And we loved it. was right where we needed to be for our season in life. But sure. the church was dying. The, the the pastor wanted us all to go through evangelism explosion and uh -huh. and learn how to do it. And, and uh, have you come to a place in your spiritual life where you can say, you know, for certain that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven. I was never right. comfortable going up to people and asking them that. And I notice a lot of the conversations in the church today are, are where I am most comfortable, which is you got to have relationships with people. And, and I right. wonder if we as Christians sometimes do ourselves a disservice by seemingly not having a lot of relationships outside our own church community where we can draw others in. Well, we do a disservice to the gospel. It's interesting when Jesus started his public ministry, he went into Galilee of the Gentiles. He went into a place that the, the, the prophet Isaiah said was a place of darkness and he became a light in that darkness. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. And what's happened, and I think in my lifetime, which is most tragic, is that many evangelical churches, and Southern Baptists will be included in that, have, uh, have, have drifted away from the culture. We've gone to protect ourselves from the culture. And, and so our, our churches become forts and, and not what God intended us to be, which is salt and light in the community. So the mobilization of people back into their community and back into the nation uh, to make a difference in in the nation and to, to meet people where they are, to love people, uh, is, is critical for the sake of the gospel. And the reason churches die and you hit the nail on the head is it, because they become inward and they no longer take the gospel outward. And, and everybody wrestles, uh, in, in this human experience with the same issues, meaning, purpose, destiny. 
And, and so when we do share the love of Jesus Christ, it can give hope to people that there is hope, that there is life after death. There is something worth living for in this life. And, and the story of Easter is that story, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so that, that really is the corpus of what a believer is supposed to be doing. The other thing is every believer in a church is to be a disciple maker. We see that Jesus made it very plain in his call to the original four disciples. He said, uh, he said follow me and I will make you something. I will make you to now fish for men. And, and so that, that becomes the reason for the existence of the body of Christ. Church is a good place to give you courage, encouragement, especially when you're suffering. And that's the other thing, too. I think there's the, the part of the disconnection is political, frankly. Uh, as we watch, a lot of conservative evangelicals like myself are concerned about our culture because at one time it seemed to have far stronger foundation and moorings, and, and we're drifting from all those things. So there's a concern there. So we, we turn to politics as a solution, and it's not the solution. I'm not saying people shouldn't vote, they shouldn't be engaged, but the reality is the gospel is a heart-changing experience. And that has to happen with people in order to see change in a culture. Yeah, you know, it, it reminds me, in the early 2000s, uh, some pro-lifers would attack George W. Bush for his position that we got to change hearts on abortion, we can't just change the law. And, and I always thought, whether that was political answer or not, there's, there's something to the idea that uh, we can't look to political saviors to change the culture when, particularly when we've got the whole God of the universe on our side, uh, we shouldn't right. be so scared of, of the culture. We've got to engage it, not be consumed by it. But there does right. almost seem to be that we leave out the Holy Spirit often in the way we approach the world. That's absolutely true. And it's, it's self-protection. And here's where it leads to churches can become uh, places where people look alike, think alike, and vote alike. And so we find our comfort in the likeness of everything. And it's very boring, <laughs> but it's <laughs> right. more than that. It's out of God's purpose and will. Uh, the church is to not be a homogenous experience. It's to be full of variety. It's full of different kinds of people all coming to the same cross and coming to the empty tomb and finding their life in Christ. And, and, and so the, the reality is anytime we start to judge one another on the basis of our politics or, or what, what we believe on social issues, uh, and, and I have very strong opinions about those things that I do not, will not abandon. However, I am to love people in the midst of that. So I can believe in the right to life from the womb to the tomb, but it means I have to have a broad interpretation of that from the standpoint that I'm, I'm fighting for to, to help uh, girls that are finding themselves in a crisis pregnancy, young men who've gotten them pregnant, and, and trying to help people understand that these are life and death issues. And then also how people are treated as they live through this life and how people are treated as they approach death. All those things matter. But what's happened is by, by withdrawing from the culture, we've, we in some senses have lost our voice uh, to speak truth into the culture. And, and there are people in this culture that would never darken the door of a church, but they have a sincere desire for truth or now, hunger for it. Let me ask you one last question here before we run out of time. I know you're not running for SBC president again, and you're going to focus in South Alabama on racial reconciliation. I, I, I have a bit of a problem with some of the conversations today on the issue of racial reconciliation, because if you or I bring it up, we're immediately accused of having views we don't. When Tim Keller and others have articulated, I think, a profound view that's led them to be attacked, that uh, we've got to have racial reconciliation through the gospel. 
And if you could talk about your view of how the gospel can reconcile uh, people in these disharmonious times, I would really, I'd like to give you that to be able to talk to the audience about. Thank you. I appreciate it. And yes, and it's not just here. I've been working in racial reconciliation and mobility with an amazing group of people. And really after Ferguson, we started meeting and praying together and getting to know each other and, and literally engage conflict about the different the differences between us. And, and we, we started to, to love each other the way the Bible tells us to love each other and began to serve in our city together. And, and so this is something I believe God has called me to take to our nation uh, through Southern Baptist, through our churches, almost 47,000 plus churches, that, that we all over this land need to start engaging this issue because politics is not the answer for this issue. And we see people being used and people being played against each other. And division is the, the theme of politics. But the gospel, division, is something very different. That people who don't look alike, think alike, or vote alike can have a unity that doesn't come because we all agree on every issue. But we agree on the critical issue, and that is that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes our hearts toward one another. So that people maybe we once hated or didn't care for or wouldn't prefer to be around, we now have a longing to be with because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so reconciliation is the ministry that God gave his church. And he put made us, he says in in first Corinthians, we are ambassadors of Christ and we are his ambassadors of reconciliation, telling all people that God doesn't want to hold their sins against them, that he wants to redeem them and forgive them. And so when I meet with other pastors who may not look like me, think like me or vote like me, and we have the same mission and goal together, we can work together. And it creates harmony in our community. When tragedy comes, we serve together, we stand together for truth. And and this is something, especially in my city, uh, that has been a dark place. The last slave ship to offload in North America was right here. The last lynching in North America was right here in my city. And and so in the midst of that background, here's what I say. If God can do this work here, he can do it anywhere. And yes, a lot of people are afraid and they're, they, because there's so many voices and there, you know, there's so many philosophies and ideas, but the gospel makes it very simple. We are to love one another. And, and so by this, Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples. So our message is very simple. We believe in a gospel centric reconciliation and that God wants us who are different from each other, Jew, Gentile in the old, in the new Testament, black, white and mobile, Alabama, Hispanic, Asians, all, all of us in this melting pot of America that is the gospel that can make us and help us make a, a better union, if you will. That's the side effect. The glorious effect is that we show the world the love of Jesus Christ when we love each other, forgive each other, and, and seek to make our nation and our communities a better place. Now, one last question for you before I let you go. Uh, this is Easter weekend. I, I, I think even secular historians, a lot of them say, uh, regardless of whether you believe in the resurrection, it, it really is the most important weekend in human history because of what it's done. Uh, to you specifically, I've asked everybody this, what does Easter really mean to Ed Linton? Well, it's very personal. Uh, as a boy, I watched my father, who was an alcoholic, his, his marriage was over. And he had been drunk for several weeks. And, but a man had told him about Jesus and that Jesus had the power, that he was risen, had the power to transform lives in this day. A miracle could take place. And my dad just begged my mom, take me to see this man and you can leave. And I, I was with him. And I watched my dad get on his knees and ask Christ into his heart. And he stood up sober. And his life was transformed 
Now, he didn't become perfect. He struggled as a man in, in, in ways that I struggle even to this day. But I saw the change. I couldn't deny that there was a powerful God who, if someone is willing to receive him, will will change their lives. And he doesn't change it the way you think he's going to change it. But he changes it in, in the more profound ways. I personally have experienced tremendous loss in my life. And what I found is God is faithful in the midst of that loss to draw near to the broken heart. And those that are crushed in spirit, he is real, he is living, and we see him working in our lives every day. And it's by faith, of course, but we also see in the reality that God, again, is seeking people who, who are willing to trust him and seeking people to be saved. And, and I just encourage people, the resurrection is everything. He lives. And because he lives, I have hope for tomorrow. Listen, I, I first of all, I can't thank you enough for doing this spur of the moment. Uh, but I really appreciate you taking time to, to spend and to share that with us. Thank you very much. Well, Eric, it's an honor. And anytime I can lift up the name of Jesus and call people to him, he's knocking at the door of your heart. Open your heart right now and trust him. And, and, and he knows where you're at. You don't have to tell him where you're at. He knows what you've been doing, and he loves you. And he sent his son to die for you. And the cure for everything that ails me is, is, is Jesus because he takes away my sin and my guilt and my shame. And he accepts us unconditionally as we are, but he will not leave us. As we are. Ed Linton, president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. It is Good Friday. We're almost through the three hours and I haven't cried that much. Uh, my friend Abby actually texted me, said she was wearing her extra waterproof mascara today because I have a tendency to, well, I have a tendency to get emotional during this. Um, y'all, thank you. I, I got a little left. Stick with me, please. I'm going to get into some of the more deep theology here, but I, I'm, I'm so glad. One of the coolest parts of my job is I, I've gotten to meet some just, I mean, world famous people, but the theologians, like I know famous, like uh, Mike Pence, the former vice president, I, we're, we're good friends. I, I know some very famous actors, uh, members of, of the Braves and, and different sports teams around Atlanta, listen to the show. And I've gotten to know some of them and, but man, some of the pastors out there, um, Ed Linton, getting to, to know him, and and Ligon Duncan becoming a friend, and and Tim Keller, it just it, it's done me a world good. That that's that really that's not to be boastful. It, it's I got a bunch of people now who uh, want want to hold me accountable and make sure that I know when I've screwed up. But it, it's been deeply humbling to get to meet them. They're wonderful people. They really are. I I hope you're okay with what I'm doing here. I'm not going to ask your apology or your forgiveness if you're not, because this means so much to me that I get to do this. And I just, I want to just focus on a verse real quick. It's the one I talk about all the time. Jeremiah 29, seven, seek the welfare of the city in which you live and pray for it. There you will find your welfare. The Israelites, the Jews, they've gone into exile and God sends them this note from Jeremiah. It's one, the, the, the prophet Daniel actually reads this. Uh, Daniel talks about reading from the book of Jeremiah. He's reading this. Seek the welfare of the city in which you live, and there you will find your welfare. Have Marry and have children and plant a garden and take a home. Please, if I can only convey to you one thing today, please, for the love of God Almighty himself, 
stop worrying so much about Washington, D.C. The God of all creation is on your side, the maker of heaven and earth who beat death in the grave. He's with you. So stop worrying so much. Stop being angry so much. Seek the welfare of your immediate city, whether you're in Alpharetta, Georgia, or Macon, Georgia, or Portland, Oregon, or Springfield, Illinois, or or Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Dayton, Ohio, or Orlando, or Jacksonville, wherever you are. Seek the welfare of where you are. Worry about the people there. Be good in your community there. That's what you're called to do. You're not called to just be angry all the time about Washington. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson, and this is the Good Friday Show. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of Heaven and Maker of Earth. And in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son of Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified and dead and buried And I believe what I believe It's what makes me who I am No, I did not make it No, it is making me It is the very truth of God Not the invention of any man That is Third Day and Brandon Heath Uh redoing, I guess, Rich Mullins' Creed. Uh, I love that. Welcome to the program. Um, I, 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 I normally do three hours. I normally prepare in detail. And two, three weeks ago now, probably three weeks ago, uh, Scott Sauls reached out to me about his new book, and I had been thinking, I really, I, I need to see get him on the program and it dawned on me wait a second I, I don't have much time to prepare for a good friend normally I mean I put months into planning this and I'm I'm just absolutely um I rushed it and my apologies to my Catholic friends I had Baptists I had Presbyterians I, I tried to get actually a couple of bishops to come on all of whom were very willing but they're like it's Holy Week and I, I it, it took me a while I want to close the program this way. I I believe it's important for people in the world to know that there is someone who shares their values and also someone in the world who can try my best, however flawed I am, to explain to those who don't believe what it is the rest of us who more than 2 billion people on the planet believe that Jesus of Nazareth went to his grave on a Friday and came out alive on a Sunday. Our entire faith hinges on the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul, in, in um, he writes about this and it says, if, if he did not physically rise from the grave, count us among the fools. 
show pity to us. We have arranged our lives on the belief that this man rose physically, bodily from the grave. There are some who try, as Lincoln Duncan pointed out, uh, they try to say, well, I can believe in a metaphysical resurrection. It's an allegory by which I live. No, you can't. You can't do that. He doesn't give you the option. Christ himself predicted. He, he said he was, I am. And, and that had real meaning. It's what God said to Moses before Abraham was, I am. That's what Christ said. It means he is God. And I want to tell you a history here now at the end. Do you know in his life, his family rejected him? Mary, the mother of God, had the angel Gabriel appear to her and say she was with the Messiah. She knew he could do great things at the wedding in Cana. She told the servants to listen to him and he turned the water to wine. By the way, that's the one thing the Jesus got wrong in the Bible. He should have turned it to bourbon, but that's another time for another another time for that. I hate grapes. Uh, but then there are multiple times where Mary went with Jesus's brothers. He had several brothers, and we know they had to be uh, Joseph's sons because they followed the pattern of the name of the day. The oldest was named James, which was the name of Joseph's father. The second was named Joseph, and that was the pattern. If you have two sons, you name the oldest after the grandfather, the second after the father. So you had Joseph, you had James, you had uh, Simeon, you had Jude, and uh, you had uh, at least two sisters. Now, some people say they were not half brothers and sisters, but first cousins. They just fit the naming pattern the sons did for Joseph. But nonetheless, they were in some way kin to Jesus in the earthly connection. And Mary and, and those boys tried to stage an intervention. They, they went when Jesus was preaching at one point and said, uh, he's out of his mind, bring him out so we can take him home. Mary was there with them doing this. She had an angel appear. And he didn't come out. And he eventually went home, and, and John, his best friend, writes the book of John. It's my favorite of the Gospels. It's the theological gospel, not the chrono chronological gospel. John does something interesting. If you never have paid attention to this, read John. John's writing to a Greek audience. If you've ever been to studied ancient Greek plays, there's always particularly three people, a narrator and two characters, and the narrator juxtaposes the two characters against each other. One's the bad guy, one's the good guy. If you read the book of John, everywhere you see Peter, you see Judas. And they both have crises of faith and reject God. One is redeemed, one is not. And the end of the book of John is actually about the redemption of Peter, not John. John makes it about Peter. And the message of the entire story is look at, at Judas and Peter who both dwelled with Christ. One rejected, they both rejected him. One uh, never betrayed him and was redeemed. And be like that guy, be like Peter. But John writes that Jesus is in Nazareth and his brothers said, get out of town. We're tired of you. We don't believe you go. Basically, if you think you're such a hot shot, go to the big city, show off. We hope you don't get killed. Well, guess what? He does. This is a historic event, by the way. There are some people who try to say Jesus never existed. Uh, no significant historian, no real historian believes that. We actually have more documentary evidence of Jesus living than we do of the Emperor Nero and several other emperors. 
We have more written documentation closer in time to Jesus's life, documenting his life, than we do for Nero. Uh, in fact, with Julius Caesar's um, the, the Gallic campaigns, his book, the the most the most recent version we have was written about nine hundred years later than when he actually wrote it. We don't dispute it, nor should we dispute the Gospels. We have thousands of copies of the Gospels over time. Uh, You can put together most of the New Testament, not all of it, but a lot of it, based on the writings of people who live within 150 years of Christ's resurrection. And John is telling us here, and we know John lived, we know when he died, 100 AD, we know he was a real person, we know he wrote this book, and and he says he's he's Jesus' best friend, he's an eyewitness, this is what he sees, and his brothers say, get out of town. And he does, he goes to Jerusalem and he gets killed, an innocent man, Tacitus, uh, Tacitus, the Roman historian, chronicles Jesus' death before Pontius Pilate and says for a short time, it was hoped it would stamp out the mythology of his divinity didn't work. And he dies. The whole sky turns black. The temple veil tears in half. God the Father could not look on God the Son. There was so much sin piled on top of him. The greatest sinner the world would ever see. All the sins, past, present, and future of mankind. The believers piled on top of him. God turns his back. The sun goes dark for three hours, a supernatural event. The veil tears. And Jesus' brothers don't even come comfort his mother Mary. None of his closest relatives show up. Jesus from the cross right before he dies has to tell Mary to, looks to John and says, mother, here's your son. And to John says, here is your mother. And John writes in his book, we know he wrote it. We know the people who knew John after all of this. And they testify, he wrote it. He took Mary into his house. And then the brothers became members of the church, leaders in the church. His brother, John, not the apostle, different John. Not, I'm sorry, James, becomes the leader of the church of Jerusalem. And James, who rejected his brother in life, is told by the Jerusalem leaders later, look, buddy, uh, we tried to kill your brother and stamp all this stuff out. And he's got even more people now saying he's the Messiah. We, we can't understand it. We know you rejected him. Will you go tell him? And, and James says, he is Yahweh doesn't just say he's, he's, he's the Messiah. He says he's Yahweh. God says he's the I am. Doesn't use the word Yahweh. He says that he's the I am. And the Jewish leaders carry James to the top of the temple and throw him off. And he's proclaiming his brother, who he rejected in life, to be the risen Lord. And then he hits the ground and he's still breathing, proclaiming Jesus as God. And they stone him to death. That's all documented history. His brother Jude writes a book of the Bible, one of the most profound books of the Bible, one of the shortest books of the Bible. And Jude says, <laughs> "My he doesn't even recognize, he says he's a servant of Jesus. Everybody knows this is Jesus' brother who rejected him in life. And says Jesus rescued his people out of Egypt. He says Jesus is God. Jesus is the one who rescued his people out of Egypt. This is, look, my sisters love me. I know they love me. We text every day, My sisters love me. They would never be willing to die proclaiming me the resurrected God of all creation. Jesus, his whole family were executed for that. The Romans exterminated his entire earthly bloodline. The half-brothers, their children, his sisters, their children, everybody exterminated. And they all hadn't rejected him in life. Staged intervention said he's nuts. And after his death said, actually, no, he was resurrected. He's alive 
and he sits on the throne of heaven. Something had to have happened for 2 billion people 2,000 years later to bow their knee and say, Jesus is Lord. And I would submit to you, I can't convince you, but I would submit to you, maybe they were telling the truth. And if I'm right, you don't have to believe me. You can call out to him yourself on your knee and ask him into your life. Take a chance. Do it sincerely. See what happens. He can dry every tear. He can calm every heart. He can change your life in ways nothing else on this planet can.